Hello, I'm Alison Hilliard and welcome to The Word, the series where we invite our guests to talk about their lives through the lens of their favourite passages from the Bible. Each of their choices will be read by the actor David Suchet. Well, today I'm here in the heart of London at Lambeth Palace. It's the home of the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, who moved here with his family in 2013. But it's not the spiritual leader of nearly 80 million people around the world I've come to meet. It's one of his five children who's become known as ABCD, the Archbishop of Canterbury's daughter. Catherine Welby Roberts was thrust into the limelight when her father was appointed Archbishop and has since become known for speaking out on issues of mental health and disability and in particular about her own struggle with depression. She works with a charity called Livability, the largest Christian disability charity in the UK, and lives here in Lambeth Palace with her husband Mike and dog Monty. Catherine, you're very welcome to The Word and thank you for being our guest today. How have you handled the media interest in you as a person, the very fact you could have got a title like ABCD? Initially I found it very difficult and I kind of forced it on myself accidentally by tweeting too much and not really thinking about the consequences. But now I guess things are fairly settled, but it's useful to be able to speak out about issues that I care a lot about and that actually I think I can do something for. Has your fame, if you like, because of your father, has it meant that it's harder for you to be a person in your own right? Well, I think just on account of being known as somebody else's something you kind of have to work out who you are in yourself in order to be able to not let that define you so when I speak out you know it's very hard not to think well people are only listening because of who my dad is so actually being me is never a priority in other people's approach to me so it's not hard to be a person in my own right but maybe it's taken some time to work out what my gifts are Is one of the complications, too, that perhaps it was particularly difficult for you to be in the limelight, to be in the media scrutiny, because of an illness that you have had since you've been a teenager? You talk very publicly about suffering from depression and anxiety and that you've had a a lifelong battle, really, all your adult life with that. Well, I think that that's why I'm in the limelight, to be honest. I think that's what people listen to me for. I don't think it adds a complication, but at the same time, mental health affects everything, so it impacts how I hear what people say about me and stuff like that. How does your mental health affect you? Some days I get a bit foggy and I can't really do much. Some days I'm quite high-functioning and I can get on with normal life. So really it's just a bit of a potluck draw thing. Also, I mean, I think my mental health has actually stabilised a lot in the last year and actually now I'm dealing with more exhaustion issues it's kind of a slightly separate bag but I think every day is a bit of a battle but I'm quite used to fighting well let's hear the first bible reading you've chosen and it's from the book of Psalms from Psalm 94 uh, verses 18 to 19 when I said my foot is slipping your unfailing love Lord supported me When anxiety was great within me, your consolation brought me joy. Psalm 94, verses 18 to 19. The psalm there mentions anxiety. 
And with mention of that, in what way does that particularly resonate with you? Anxiety is probably the most constant aspect of my life. Rush hour is hell on earth. That will trigger me. Hugely loud noises, busy places, change in plan, change in routine, unexpected surprises. You know, I mean, I don't mind being surprised with the present, but that's probably the only surprise I can cope with. It's my norm every day. I consider when I'm going to leave the house and how much that's going to impact on me and how much medication I might need to take. (laughs) Constant tension, that's the biggest issue. You know, quite often you get quoted the more often used anxiety verse in Philippians where it talks about pass your anxieties onto Jesus. And this one actually suggests that anxiety is a normal part of life and it's something that we just live with and actually that God brings us something in that. And so it's just an encouragement that I'm not completely broken and actually God can see the anxiety, he recognises it as a part of life and he'll comfort me in it and makes me feel less like a freak, I suppose. You've talked about that anxiety and the depression and the tension very openly in a blog you write and you say that from the moment you're up you're battling negative thoughts. Yeah, it's very difficult when your brain is negatively geared against you not to succumb to complete darkness and to give up any thought of hope. It's just fairly constant and continual and normal to just try and bat away the thoughts as they enter your head. And exhausting. Yeah, very exhausting. I am permanently exhausted. And is that one of the reasons that you have wanted to write such a personal blog about your condition and about how it makes you feel and to be so open and honest in it as you are. It wasn't a deliberate conscious thought, I'm going to write a really personal blog. It kind of just happened. I find it very normal and natural to be quite open. I talk far too much about myself, I overshare every day, so it was a complete accident really that it became a blog. Let's move on to your second selection from the Bible and it's from the book of Psalms again and this time it's from Psalm 139, verses 11 to 15. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being, You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Catherine, what does this psalm mean to you? The bit that I really love is actually the very beginning of that. Often... It feels like everything is dark. And I mean, recently I'm talking more about my mental health improving and actually my physical health deteriorating. It's been really interesting because actually that feeling of everything being quite dark hasn't changed because actually I'm now living where I'm trapped by exhaustion rather than depression. It doesn't feel like much has changed on the fact that I can't do stuff. I'm quite restricted and trapped. And there's something about saying... You know, it does feel like often God isn't there and God has given up or gone away and it feels very dark and like there's no 
light coming, but I might not be able to see where God is, but I know that he can see where I am and he's there with me in it, even when I actually can't see through it. And he can see the change that could come or the hope that is there. And, you know, I might not find it until I'm standing on top of it, but he can see it coming. How much have you craved that sense of darkness that the Sam talks about too, because you've talked about wanting to run away and hide in a hole? I don't think I crave darkness so much as just space and freedom from just life and the day-to-day slog of it and the day-to-day burden that it can feel like. I've wanted to escape from that. Has that ever brought you to the brink of thoughts about suicide, for example? Yeah, I've got to the point where I would have loved to have gone, but I've never got to the point where I've tried anything. Life can feel like an awful lot too much a lot of the time. And what did the darkness do for your relationship with God? Did you feel a sense of being disconnected? Or, as you've said earlier, did you feel that God was with you in that darkness? I tried to give up on God altogether for a while, and I walked away for about six months, and I was like, no, I've had enough. You know, I don't want to believe in you anymore, and I don't think I do believe in you anymore, and then kind of found that I was being pulled back. And I think the idea that God is real is absurdly ludicrous, but I can't deny what I've experienced and what I understand, and I can't deny his reality, even though... Logically, looking at it, it seems completely absurd. So do you think that's what keeps your faith strong? Partly. Also, just recognising that through all the ups and downs, God has often been completely invisible to me. And then, in hindsight, you kind of look and you see the moments when all hope seemed lost and suddenly hope appeared out of nowhere. And I think I've just kind of begun to recognise that when I feel like God's abandoned me, I'm probably just not looking in the right direction. And I don't really even need to look in the right direction because I know that he's there. Is there a pressure too, because you are the Archbishop of Canterbury's daughter, that people expect you to have a strong faith and expect you to have an answer to every problem? Honestly, I think I struggled with that more when he was a parish vicar and I was at school. (laughs) Now I know my faith and I knew my faith before he got this job. But at school, certainly. You know, I used to swear and have people go, you can't swear, your dad's the vicar. You'd be like, oh, I'm so sorry, but I can, and I will. So, no, now I don't really feel any pressure. I've made my choice, and it wasn't my father's choice. I've done my own journey, I've done my own work, and I'm happy. What would you say to others who are maybe experiencing something similar to you? Would you point them, for example, towards this psalm to say that God is there even in the darkness? I'm really bad at encouraging others because I don't really know where my encouragement comes from. I don't really know what gives me hope. It kind of pops up in random strange places. But I know that suffering is part of life and God gets it. And that is the biggest encouragement is that actually when all seems lost, God isn't trying to yank us out of a hole. He's getting into it with us. Let's hear now the next biblical passage you've chosen. It's from the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 1, verse 17. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. What does this verse from Isaiah mean to you? I think it's just a real clear call to action. It commands us to do stuff for those who are needing help and I think often we get lost in 
our suffering and our struggle and our pain and we forget about the world and that Jesus came for the whole world, not just us. You've tried to put that into action in your own work with the Christian charity Livability. How have you done that through their work? The thing that I loved about Livability is that they believe in community and they believe in every person in the community having a place in the community. And as a church, we're called very, very clearly to defend the oppressed, and yet often our communities are quite insular and inward-looking and self-serving. We do stuff for other people, but it's an us-and-them thing, and livability is all about us, and we together can do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed. And presumably, too, that's behind the work you've put in recently into a mental health access pack for churches, that sense of creating inclusion and welcome and community. Yeah, you know, mental health will impact one in four people in any year, and so churches will not be immune to that. We need to learn how to get out of our comfort zones in order to create comfort zones for everyone else so that we can have a place where actually everyone is welcome and everyone feels safe. And the Mental Health Access Pack was something that I can do because I understand a bit more about mental health. What has your experience been of the welcome that you've received in church or the welcome that people with mental health issues have received in church? I've had really negative experiences where I've been told that I've got demons, <laughs> I've failed God, I've not understood God's love, I just need to understand the joy of the Lord, pass my anxieties onto Jesus. And then I've had experiences, you know, where churches really rallied around and they've been really available, they've been practically supportive, prayerfully supportive. But I think we, as the church, need to get better at mental health across the board, create safer spaces. So I think that the experiences that I've had have been really useful because it means I can turn around and say, look, I know you want to help this person, but actually telling them that they need to understand the love of the Lord and that'll make them better is totally unhelpful and not theologically accurate. But how typical would the belief be that once you are a Christian, once you've embraced Christ, that you shouldn't have a problem like this at all, or if you do, you can just be healed if you have enough faith? It's surprisingly common and entirely baffling. I get very angry when I come across that kind of belief because it just suggests a complete lack of theological understanding. It puts all the impetus for change onto someone who's already ill and it takes away all the relationship that God's been building with that person it takes away the love that God's got for that person. You know, even in the New Testament, all the apostles died. They were martyred. They didn't have suffering-free lives. You know, they had Jesus and they loved him and he loved them and they knew it and actually they had their salvation and that was enough. That didn't mean that they weren't martyred and it didn't mean that they didn't suffer and didn't struggle and didn't fight through life. And... Uh, do you remember those what-would-Jesus-do wristbands? I mean, it's just so not what Jesus would do. He wouldn't turn around and say, now that you've got me in your life, you shouldn't be depressed. He'd say, now that you've got me in your life, let's see what we can do together. And he would love you and work with you and support you and encourage you. And he's transformed my life. I just am still ill. But he's with me and that's enough. What do you think your 
passion for this issue. How do you think that's impacted your father, for example, and how he might think of mental illness and what the church's attitude might be? Oh, goodness. I know my dad's proud of me. I know that he thinks that you can be a Christian and be depressed. Because, <laughs> you know, he understands. Do you hope in some way, though, that he, because of your experience and because of your relationship, that he might lead a drive to make churches more aware of this issue? Yeah, I mean, I think he'd have done it regardless. He's always been aware of the people who were less fortunate or struggling with something. And, and you know, he's had a lot of life experience of very difficult things long before I got ill. Thank you. Well, let's move on to your next reading, and this time it's from the letter of James, chapter 1, verses 19 to 20. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. So what made you choose these verses from James, then? I'm quick to speak, quick to become angry, very slow to listen, unless I... <laughs> I consider carefully what I'm doing. I have a quick temper, I suppose. It's just a challenge. And also, it's very easy to go, my anger is righteous. And then you hear, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And you're like, oh, well, you know. My father has always been very good at reconciliation, and you listen to both sides, and you hear what's going on. So I think it's a real personal challenge to me, but also a huge challenge to the church. Let's hear some verses from the book of the prophet Jeremiah that you turn to for guidance, and they're from Jeremiah 17, verses 7 to 8. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. Catherine, how do these verses from Jeremiah speak to you? I feel a lot of the time like I'm in drought, especially over the last few years where things have been really difficult health-wise. And I don't often feel like my leaves are green, but actually, again, it's about God being present in the darkness and God being present in the pain. And actually, often that shows even when you feel a bit parched. So is there a sense in which, if you like, you've learnt to separate trust in God from a feeling that God is near? Yeah, I've learnt that relying on feelings is foolish when your body is giving you feelings. <laughs> you know, like, I feel like everyone hates me half the time, so <laughs> I've been assured that that's not the case. My husband apparently does genuinely love me, even though I often feel like probably no one does, and it's completely absurd that anyone would. So feelings for me are not necessarily helpful. And I think separating trust from feeling is essential because actually there's very few people who will feel like God is close every minute of every day of their lives. Even Jesus felt abandoned. And now for your final reading, and it's from the letter of St Paul to the Romans, chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, 
because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What made you choose this passage? This is one of my favourite passages of the Bible because, again, it normalises suffering. I think in my darkest moments, those are the moments where I've found the most God. Those are the points where God has been visibly working in my life and at his most tangible. I'm really grateful, in a way. I mean, I'd rather have lived a life of perfect health, but actually I'm really grateful that because I've had this, I know a God that some people might never experience because I've experienced what God does in the darkest moments, in the most hopeless places. And I know God's love for me is beyond counting, beyond understanding, beyond recognition. So I'd like to have a life that is very healthy, but I don't regret that I've had to experience this because without it, I might not have seen that God is genuinely bigger than my mind could ever comprehend. But there's a logical progression here in the passage, isn't there, from suffering to perseverance, to building character and leading to hope. But I'm wondering for you how much of a struggle it is to hold on to the hope, to know that the suffering will ultimately come through to produce hope. Yeah, I mean, hope is a funny one because I think, for me, hope isn't a feeling. It's a reality. I know with all my heart that suffering will end. It might not happen till I'm dead, but I know it's going to end, and that is hope enough, and that's very real. And I think hope as a feeling is very difficult to cling to when nothing changes or, or deteriorates and gets worse, but hope as knowledge, hope as a reality that God promises us, hope as God's love being poured out into our hearts. That's something that can't be denied. What about the hope that maybe is the other part of your character, the part of Catherine Wilby-Roberts that likes to, I don't know, have a bit of fun, be a bit silly at times, to like a bit of excitement? I'm thinking of the one incident where you tweeted a picture of yourself with a tea cosy on, oh, your, on yes. your head that looked like a bishop's mitre yeah. and appropriately just before a vote on women bishops. I think you're capable of being a bit silly too and of poking a bit of fun at the church. Not at the church, just at anything. I think life is hilarious. I think if you lose sight of the comedy, then <laughs> all hope is lost. I mean, I think I made a joke out of pretty much everything. The women bishop saying that was totally accidental. Genuinely, I just saw a tea cosy that was huge. Never seen a teapot that would be big enough to warrant that tea cosy. And, you know, what else do you do with a giant tea cosy but put it on your head? And then tweet that it looks like you're a woman bishop. I didn't know at the time that Dad was about to become Archbishop of Canterbury. I had no idea, and I'd have got away with it too if he hadn't. Is that sort of sense of humour also why you have called your blog a conglomerate of yodelling hippopotami, which is, to say the least, a little unusual? <laughs> I love words, and it's such a fun thing to say. I just really enjoy those words. I think they're three of my favourite words because they're just so much fun. Your mouth enjoys saying them. A conglomerate of yodelling hippopotami. It just brings me joy. And hippopotami, 
are just the coolest animal ever. You wouldn't believe they could run as fast as they can. They're freaking huge. They swim really well, they run, they can chop you in half with their mouths, but they look kind of cuddly and squidgy and fun. And I was like, well, if I'm writing a blog, it's basically about words and words are what I love. And so I'm gonna use three of my favorite words in the world. (laughs) Is it also good because you've got a joy for animals? Because I know that you're devoted to your dog. Yeah, I love our dog. Monty is a happy little bundle of fluff, absurd in how energetic he is. Animals are fun. I think they show God's creative side. Fish are the most fun. I mean, seriously, you know God's got a sense of humour when you see a fish with a giant light bulb hanging down the front of its face. I mean, fish, animals, flowers show God's creativity and humour. So what would your hope be then as you look to the future and you follow through that suffering leading to perseverance, bringing character and hope? I don't know, I want to have kids. I want to write more positive, happy stuff. (laughs) My biggest hope is that my health improves because then life will become a bit freer, a bit more exciting, a bit more livable because I do really enjoy life and I'm quite happy, you know, I'm really happy at the moment. Life is good. I just can't enjoy it, really. I take it one day at a time, to be honest. Catherine Welby-Roberts, thank you for being our guest today. It was a real pleasure talking to you and thank you for your honesty and for your insight and also for your encouragement. I'm Alison Hilliard and you've been listening to The Word on Things Unseen, the platform for people who think there's more to life than the purely material. Things on scene was brought to you by CTVC. And you can hear this program again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.